0: Good morning, and thanks for joining me for Rise and Crime, your morning caffeine hit all about crime. I'm Mama Jules, and let's begin today with a story out of Akron, Ohio, where a young woman has been sentenced to life for murdering her mother. 23-year-old Sydney Powell grew up in Akron. She's the daughter of Stephen and Brenda Powell and the sister to Andrew. Sydney was raised in a Christian middle-class home, and she graduated from St. Vincent St. Mary High School in 2018. Now, upon her graduation, she enrolled in the Liberal Arts College, University of Mount Union, and that's in Alliance, Ohio. This private college has an intimate feel, with less than 2,000 undergrad students enrolled. And an interesting side note, Mount Union's mascot is a macaw, and they are called the Purple Raiders. So we could totally dive into a whole discussion about how school mascots and names are chosen, but we have a murdered woman to honor, so let's get to that. Sydney had been enrolled for about a year, and things just weren't going well. Her grades were slipping, and the university had put Sydney on academic probation. And when she didn't repair her damaged grades, the school threatened to pull her student funding and remove her from enrollment. Now, Sydney was becoming more and more discouraged with her own behavior. She had told her father that all of her friends had their crap together and that she just couldn't make that happen in her life. Well, March of 2020 rolled around and Mount Union had hit that breaking point with Sydney. While Sydney was in their family home, her mother, 50-year-old Brenda Powell, she received a call from the Student Enrollment Office at Mount Union. Associate Dean of Students, Michelle Gaffney, was explaining to Brenda that Sydney had been suspended from school and she had used up all of her mulligans, all of her do-overs were done. Sydney became more and more agitated and frantic as the phone call continued, knowing that the information that was being shared with her mother was about to change her life forever. In an act of rage, Sydney grabbed a frying pan from the kitchen and she began repeatedly beating her mother over the head. Now Michelle, the associate dean of students, well, she testified that she heard in the neighborhood of six to seven thudding sounds and that those thud sounds were accompanied by screaming. It was then the phone call between Brenda and the university, well, it just went dead. And university officials were terrified by the sounds they had just heard. So alarmed, Michelle alerted others in the office and they came with her and they began to try to call Brenda back. Michelle testified that a woman answered the phone and claimed to be Brenda, but Michelle had just talked with Brenda, and she knew the voices were different. Michelle said the female voice said, yeah, this is Brenda, this is Brenda. Michelle knew then she was talking with Sydney. Michelle looked at Dean of Students John Frazier, who could hear the call, and they just both shook their heads in unison. John Frazier then said, Sydney, I think this is you. We know this is not Brenda. Michelle said the line then went dead. Now, if Michelle and John were alarmed before, they are now desperate to get help for Brenda Powell. They call 911 and they request officers do an immediate welfare check on the home. While all of that is taking place, a frantic, and I mean frantic, Sydney continues her rampage. She retrieves a knife from the kitchen and she stabs her already incapacitated mother nearly 30 times in the neck. When officers arrive at the scene, her out of control behavior, it's not subsided. It hasn't calmed down at all. Here, I'll just let you listen to just a bit of the audio from the responding officer's body cam recordings. Where's your mom at? <laughs> okay, she's so No, no, like, there's so much blood. You can hear the frustration in the officers' voices. They can't even get her to stop screaming long enough to answer any questions. She's just, I don't know, she's just blatantly lying and saying someone broke into the house. Okay, of officers eventually confirm that only Brenda and Sydney were at the home during the attack. They also quickly scoop up Brenda, who is barely clinging to life, and they transfer her to the Cleveland Clinic in Akron General. Brenda dies there shortly after being attended to, and EMS transfers Sydney to Summa Akron City Hospital for minor abrasions and mostly for being completely out of control. Now between the reports from Mount Union University Assistant Dean and Dean of Students and what they witnessed at the scene, Sydney Powell was released from the hospital a day later, then immediately taken to the Summit County Jail. Authorities charged her with the murder of Brenda Powell, as well as assault and tampering with evidence. Sydney was released on bail and returned to a tattered and worn family situation. It was so tattered. Her father, Steve, and her maternal grandmother, Betsy, urged prosecutors not to take Sydney's case to trial. Instead, they had desired a plea deal. But the prosecution felt it only appropriate for a jury to make the final decision about Sydney's criminal responsibility. More than three years later, and we can probably thank COVID for that, but more than three years later, Sydney faced a jury trial in the death of her mother. The three week trial held in September centered around Sydney's mental status at the time of the murder. Defense expert James Reardon argued that Sydney suffered a psychotic break when she killed her mother. He was just one of three experts for the defense who had evaluated Sydney and diagnosed her with schizophrenia. They all testified that because she suffered from this mental illness, she didn't understand the wrongfulness of her actions when she lost control and killed her mother three years ago. But of course, the prosecution, well, they disagree. And their expert, Sylvia Obradovic, said Sydney didn't meet the legal definition of insanity at the time of the crime. Now, Sylvia, she's the prosecution expert. She did agree that Sydney has mental issues that include borderline personality traits and anxiety disorders. But she testified that those illnesses don't absolve Sydney from her murderous actions. Now, during closing arguments, Sydney's defense attorney, Don Malarsik, he asked jurors to compare the expert testimonies. He implored jurors to weigh out the evaluations of three defense experts with a combined 50 years experience versus a psychologist who was testifying for the first time in a murder trial that had insanity as a legal defense. He claimed Sydney wasn't mentally capable of fooling those three defense experts, But Assistant Prosecutor Brian Stano reiterated to jurors that Sydney's murderous attack started with a pan. He said she had to at some point pause enough to retrieve a knife from the kitchen and continue the attack. He contended that the knife attack to the neck with almost 30 stab wounds was purposeful. Well, after deliberating for more than 9 hours, the jury found Sydney guilty on all charges. And last week, Judge Kelly McLaughlin sentenced her to life in prison. Now, with this sentence, she is eligible for parole after serving for 15 years. And I've watched the sentencing, and the courtroom was heavy. Her father is sobbing, Sydney is sobbing. When asked by the judge if she wanted to make a statement prior to the sentencing, You can barely hear her mutter the word no. The prosecution implored the judge to impose a sentence of 18 years to life for the murder charge and the maximum for the remaining charges. He also asked for the sentences to be served consecutively. He argued that Sydney's conduct, especially after the attack, deserved more than the minimum. Okay, so here's his concern. He's afraid she's going to get out after 15 years and this just doesn't settle well with him. But Sydney's attorney reminded the judge that the family was not supportive of the trial and they stand behind Sydney getting mental help. But that now with the guilty verdict, her attorney asked for the minimum sentence. He also asked that she serve her time at a new 100 bed mental health treatment center in Marysville, Ohio. When the judge left the bench to consider the request by the defense and the prosecution, Sydney's attorney, well, he kind of lost it he seemed furious and he rebuked the prosecution for asking for consecutive sentences. His anger seemed to stem from previous conversations with the prosecution where they did not represent that they would be asking for consecutive sentences. Now, according to a post-sentencing interview with Court TV, Sydney's attorney said he had asked the prosecution to consider a plea deal of manslaughter, but that the prosecution refused to even meet with Sydney's family. He said the rights of the family had been trampled on during this process. He also addressed why Sydney had not interacted with her family in the courtroom. He claimed he didn't want any court officials to feel like she was communicating with the family. He intends to appeal the decision, and he didn't want any factors to stand in the way of overturning the verdict. Well, all of that arguing aside, all of it's done. Let's take a moment to remember Brenda Powell. Brenda was a graduate of the University of Akron, and she worked as a child life specialist in the hematology oncology unit at Akron Children's Hospital. She had spent her entire career caring for those battling cancer. She even founded the Oncology Teen Program at the Children's Hospital. Both the hospital staff and her family expressed how she changed countless lives in her healthcare work. I think we can collectively pray for peace for Steve, Andrew and Sydney. And now to a story that has been fluid and filled with breaking news moments this last week. This survivor story starts with a family doing what you really just hope families do. They were just spending time together. David and Tricia Cena had taken their family camping to Moreau Lake State Park in upper New York State. And this was a very familiar and easy trip for the little family. Moreau Lake State Park is about 12 miles from the family's home, and it offers a 4,600-acre camping opportunity that is nestled between Lake George and Saratoga Springs. It's truly a beautiful area that has had a history of being a safe place for families. The Cena family was there with close friends, so close that the children, well, they refer to each other as cousins, even though they aren't biologically related. And it was getting close to dinner time when Trisha and David's daughter, Charlotte, decided to ride a couple of loops through the park area on her bicycle, and she wasn't alone. Those friends that she calls cousins, well, they were riding with her also. And little Charlotte, dressed in her orange tie-dye Pokemon shirt and her black Crocs, was keeping up with the big kids. She was even being responsible and wearing her gray bike helmet. The group divided up, and they headed back to their individual campsites to have dinner. And that's when Charlotte decided to be a big girl. She was feeling brave enough to ride the loop alone. But she never returned from that solo ride. In less than 15 minutes, her parents knew something was wrong. And this is one of those worst nightmare moments for parents. The campers, they collectively began searching for Charlotte. And when 15 more minutes had expired and they could not find her, even with the group effort, Trisha called 911. By seven o'clock that night, the area was being searched by state police. And that search included tracking dogs, drone searching, and organized teams of law enforcement like dive teams, forest rangers, and technology experts. Over the next 24 hours, the search party swelled to over 400 participants. The terrain was full of shrubbery, steep in some areas, and most of the search areas were so thick with vegetation that searchers were splitting shrubbery just to walk. Now, checkpoints were set up at entrances and exits to the park. Trunks and rear cargo areas were being searched, and investigators were questioning those drivers as they left the park. The next few days were filled with despair for Trisha and David, hours where parents are remembering all the beautiful things about their child instead of entertaining those fears of where she could be or what could be happening to her. They reflected on the idea that she was a class leader, She was recently elected as a class officer for the fourth grade at her school. And the parents clung to the memories that had been made at that state park. The joy that Charlotte and their two other daughters had experienced in the time that they had spent there. And this is just one of those moments where the community rallies together. Charlotte's uncle was a firefighter, and he was searching for her in the state park alongside his peers, whose search efforts were never-ending. David, Charlotte's father, well, he belonged to the local pipefitters union, and they contacted businesses to receive donations to feed those searching for hours and hours. And those donations, they just poured in. Well, the search, which started last Saturday night, crept into Sunday and then into Monday. It was that Monday that investigators caught that break, the kind of break that investigators yearn for, but they know they will rarely ever get. At 4.20 on that Monday morning, someone left a ransom note at the home of David and Tricia Cena. The man put the note in the Cena's mailbox, and upon discovering the note, investigators whisked the evidence to the lab and began testing where they found a usable print. That print was entered into the database, and they got a hit. The print led back to a 1999 arrest for a DUI committed by the now 46-year-old Craig Nelson Ross Jr. And that's when the hyperspeed mode was activated. Investigators quickly identified that Ross Jr. lived in a camper van behind his mother's double-wide trailer that was located just about 15 minutes from the Cena family home. Two cruisers were sent to patrol the mouth of the street that dead ends in the cul-de-sac where Ross Jr.'s mother lives. All of this happens in about a half-hour span after identifying the fingerprint. Eventually, an ambulance and additional law enforcement and a tactical team arrive, and the scene unfolded. The team used flashbangs near the camper van to produce loud booms that stun the suspect, and this is in order for the team to subdue him. Task Force Officer Robert Crispin said, "...it really gives the team the edge and you know, an element of surprise." Now, once Ross Jr. was subdued and removed from the camper van, law enforcement entered and they found innocent little Charlotte hiding in a cabinet. She had folded herself into a little compact package and she was waiting for help to arrive. Charlotte appeared to be, at least on the exterior, unharmed, but she was transported to a hospital where she is being evaluated both mentally and physically. Neighbors described to Fox News how the scene unfolded. One man who lives near the Ross Jr. home said it was like a scene out of a movie, SWAT trucks and cop cars pulling up within seconds of each other. The man said he was just walking outside to ask the police officer who had pulled his car onto his grass to just kindly move the vehicle off the grass. He said when he went to do that, more than a dozen police vehicles entered the cul-de-sac. Another neighbor said she hid her children in the basement out of fear for what might happen. And then one neighbor said that during the raid, he caught a glimpse of the nine-year-old as she was getting wheeled into the ambulance. He said he felt an overwhelming need to hug her, just hold her until her mother could get there. You know what? The Rise and Crime audience gets you. We celebrate when the ending is happy, even though it rarely happens. We celebrate when it does. Now that same neighbor He described the behavior of law enforcement. He said it was as if you could hear them all exhale at the same time after Ross Jr. was captured and Charlotte was found safe. Ross Jr. is being held without bail on the charge of kidnapping. Charlotte's family released a statement saying, they were thrilled that Charlotte has been returned to her family. They were also aware that not every family has that wonderful of an outcome. They thanked the FBI, New York State Police, all of the agencies that were mobilized, all of the families, friends, community, and neighbors who supported them and worked tirelessly to bring Charlotte home. And we'll finish with this wonky story out of Missouri. You guys, I bring you stories all of the time of domestic abuse that end in murder, kind of like Monday's episode about the woman who shot her husband and enlisted her kids to help in his burial. But this violence has a different twist. We've still got some of the same things. We've got a married couple, 38 year old Stephanie Boyd and her 31 year old husband who hasn't been named. And we've still got an argument between the two that escalated to a place of little to no control and that included physical violence. But when Stephanie tried to leave the shared home, her spouse jumped on top of the car thinking that would stop her from leaving. Well, it didn't. Stephanie drove over seven miles through construction zones, neighborhoods, and across an interstate before being pulled over by officers. And her driving wasn't spectacular. According to court documents, she drove erratically at varying speeds until a passing officer saw her, and I'm sure it caused a massive double-take. You got a guy riding on the hood of the car. Well, that officer was finally able to pull Stephanie over after she had sped through local roads. She drove more than a half mile after the officer put on his lights, and then she finally pulled over. She was arrested and charged with domestic assault for attempting to cause serious physical injury to her husband. She was also charged with resisting arrest due to the fleeing from the cops. A judge has set her bond at $100,000. dollars But this is not Stephanie's first brush with the law when it comes to domestic violence. She has other active warrants into other Missouri jurisdictions, as well as previous arrests for domestic assault. All right, so let's talk about it. October is Domestic Violence Awareness Month. Each year, more than 10 million people are victims of domestic violence. And nearly 20% of violent crime in the U.S. has domestic violence characteristics. The National Domestic Violence Center reminds the public that anyone can be an abuser and anyone can be abused. Now, I, I think there's a like a humorous side of this conversation where people talk or they joke about significant others' beige flags or pink flags. But there is a serious side to red flags. The National Domestic Violence Hotline says in relationships, you should be looking for red flags. And those red flags that you can be looking for, well, look for extreme criticism or jealousy of even simple things like just spending time apart. Or maybe you're looking for controlling characteristics or Someone who's always insulting you or pressuring you in situations, whether it be pressuring you for substance use or sexual contact or lifestyle choices. Maybe the red flag is they're threatening or intimidating you with that kind of behavior. And another big one is, are they destroying property? Now, stats vary depending on the agency, but here's some quick notes about domestic violence. Nearly 20 people per minute are physically abused by an intimate partner in the U.S. One in four women and one in seven men will experience severe physical violence by an intimate partner. The stats get even tighter when you take the word severe out of the equation. Mental and physical abuse is sometimes rated at one in three women and one in four men. And more than three women are murdered by their husbands or boyfriends every day in the U.S. I find that statistic just staggering. Kate, there are resources available for those looking to leave an abusive situation, even if it feels like there's no way out. The National Domestic Violence Hotline is open 24-7, and the website also provides a list of local resources, help that is available in your own area, which is so critical. You can visit the website at thehotline.org, or you can start a text feed with someone by texting the word start to 88788. Well, that's your Thursday episode of Rise in Crime. Thanks so much for the five-star reviews. And if you haven't left a review, please do, especially if you're willing to leave a five-star. And you can always message us case suggestions. Remember, you can also follow Rise in Crime or Binged or Murder with My Husband or all three on Instagram and TikTok. And please subscribe to the YouTube channels. Join me again on Thursday for more morning crime news. I'm Mama Jules, and keep safe out there.